0: At 30 years old, he was one of the most powerful men in the Midwestern United States. The only thing he loved more than money and power was the spotlight. Pea green suits, diamond studded pocket watches, and an off-white fedora ensured he was always the center of attention. Not that he needed them. At 5 foot 10 and 210 pounds, he stood out in any room even the ones he didn't own. This week, we'll discuss a real-life villain whose reign of crime and carnage left an indelible mark on American and Western society, permanently changing the way we view, discuss, and combat organized crime. A man whose name has practically become synonymous with the mob. I'm talking, of course, about Scarface himself also known as Snorky, also known as Big Al, always known as Al Capone. Hey everyone, it's Alastair. I host a few shows for ParCast where week after week, we aim to bring you some of the best scripted storytelling in podcasts. You're listening to Villains. On this show, we examine fictional villains from movies, literature, and comic books, and compare them to real-world figures who fit the same mold. In the process, we hope to tackle deeper questions about the nature of villainy, like where it comes from, why some breeds of villains captivate us, and why we find others so terrifying. We're currently in the midst of a 10-episode deep dive on crime bosses and mafiosos, Characters like Don Vito Corleone from The Godfather, Frank Costello, the Prime Minister of the Underworld, and even Marvel Comics' Kingpin. This week, we continue our discussion with the most famous real-life crime boss of all. Al Capone's stature, flair for fashion, ruthlessness, and origins are highly reminiscent of the Kingpin, and his impact on Western culture is undeniable. As always, remember to listen on Spotify. It's free. They have great personal curation, so you can constantly find new podcasts like Villains. It's easy to use, and they are continuing to innovate and help all creators within the world of podcasts. Just type Villains in the search bar, and we'll be right there. The broad facts of Al Capone's life are legendary. In the heyday of Prohibition, he was the head of the Chicago Outfit, a sophisticated, labyrinthine criminal organization that brought in over a million dollars a year and churned out dead bodies almost as fast. He was a bootlegger, a racketeer, a philanthropist, loved by the press, hated by the press. Public enemy number one. Rumored to be the mind behind one of the most violent and bloody days in gangland history. Not to mention countless other crimes for which he was never convicted. And finally, taken down, not for murder, or graft, or bribery, but for tax evasion. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In today's episode, we're going to discuss where Al Capone came from, how he rose to power, and what set him apart from countless other crime bosses. Why nearly a century after his death, he still fascinates and stands unchallenged as America's true king of crime. Alphonse Gabriel Capone was born on January 17, 1899, in Brooklyn, New York. His parents, Gabrielle and Teresa, had recently immigrated from Italy with Al's three older brothers. They lived in a shabby tenement on Park Avenue, which would become increasingly cramped as their clan grew to include nine children. While Al Capone's big, loud family was as traditionally Italian-American as could be, his street was a multicultural melting pot. Eastern Europeans, Germans, and Irish families were packed in side-by-side. Their children roamed the streets in gangs, often clashing with kids of other ethnicities. Al had always been a big, athletic kid and had the bravado and temper to match, factors that made him popular among the Italian youths of his neighborhood. On their urging, he was constantly getting into brawls with the Irish boys, Something that worried his father, Gabriel, greatly. Meanwhile, Al was growing increasingly disenchanted with the parochial Catholic school he attended. Despite frequently skipping class to roam the streets with his friends, he had always managed to earn strong marks, particularly in English and mathematics. But Al believed that his teachers were unfairly strict with the students from immigrant families, a fact that frustrated him to no end. There are varying accounts of what happened next, but things seem to have reached a breaking point when Al was in the sixth grade. According to one account, the 14-year-old got fed up with a female teacher who had been chastising him and punched her in the mouth. She supposedly then sent Al to the school principal, who beat him as punishment. Whether or not Al was expelled is disputed but he never returned to school again. It's important to note that at least so far, none of Al Capone's story is particularly extraordinary. It wasn't uncommon at this time for the children of immigrant families to leave school at an early age, but it would be Al's next decision that would change his life forever, setting him down a path to becoming one of the most infamous criminals the world had ever seen. Gabriel Capone worried that his son's newfound freedom would lead to even more trouble and gang association. His solution? Get Al a shine kit and send him to a busy thoroughfare to service the businessmen on their way to and from work. Al would stay busy, help out the family, and get a peek into the world of hard-working, honest business. Needless to say, things didn't go according to plan. Al's time on Columbia Street was an education of sorts, but not into the type of business that Gabrielle had had in mind. From his vantage point on the street corner, young, impressionable Al Capone watched as low-level mob enforcers harassed, shook down, and threatened the local businesses for cash. Anyone who didn't pay for the goons' quote-unquote protection got a beating or a broken window. In no time at all, Al Capone was employing this strategy himself, targeting the other young shoe shiners who worked the street. Several of his friends joined in to help, dubbing themselves the South Brooklyn Rippers. Right from the start, we can see several parallels between Al Capone's early life and Kingpin's origin story. Both were born to poor families in New York City. Both were intelligent boys who did well in school and both had childhoods that were affected by being much larger than their peers. They also both began committing crimes at a young age. Wilson Fisk, the kingpin, committed his first murder at 12. Al Capone was operating as a young racketeer at least by the age of 14. Perhaps most significantly, both boys soon discovered that they were more effective working with others than alone and formed their own youth gangs to support them. The South Brooklyn Ripper's tenure on Columbia Street didn't last long. A local mob boss got wind of their activities and had them run out of the area with a warning not to return. But Al had learned a valuable lesson. By stepping outside the law, he'd earned far more with far less effort than any of the honest shoeshiners. And something else had happened too. Partly due to his size and partly due to the success of his criminal activities, Al had captured the attention of yet another crime boss. His name was Johnny Torrio. In 1915, 33-year-old Johnny Torrio was something of a rising star in Manhattan's criminal underworld. He owned several brothels and ran a burgeoning extortion business, all of which were flourishing under his careful, fastidious direction. He was an intelligent, charming man who preferred using his brains to his muscle and avoided dirtying his own hands whenever possible. That approach meant that he needed good lieutenants to rely on. And he found one in 16-year-old Al Capone. Al was initially brought on as an enforcer, but quickly given more and more responsibilities. He accompanied Torrio to private business meetings and assisted the organization's accountants with tracking payments. This gave Al countless opportunities to watch his boss at work, and he soaked up every minute of it, taking special note of how careful Torrio was to maintain distance between himself and anything explicitly illegal. But Manhattan's criminal underworld was an increasingly crowded pond, and Torrio had aspirations to be a big fish. He began shifting his activities to Chicago, leaving young Capone without much to do. So Al started working for the second man who would shape his future, an associate and pupil of Torrio's named Frankie Yale. In many ways, Yale was the opposite of Torrio. He talked loud and dressed louder, his bold, flashy suit always visible the moment he stepped into one of his clubs. He was also ruthless, quick to use violence to solve any problem. Once again, Al Capone watched and took notes. A lot of the work Capone did for Yale involved serving as a bouncer at his brothels and Coney Island bar an establishment called the Harvard Inn. Capone seems to have frequented these venues as much as he worked them. One night at the Harvard Inn, he made a lewd advance on a woman, sparking a fight with her brother. The man reportedly smashed a bottle against the bar and attacked Al, leaving three garish scars down the side of Capone's left cheek. These would earn him his least favorite moniker, Scarface. But not all of Al's romantic pursuits were so ill-fated. Around the same time, he met an Irish woman named May Cocklin. They got married in December of 1918, a few weeks after their son Albert Sonny Capone was born. Unfortunately, Sonny was a sickly child. Al had contracted syphilis from his time spent at Torrio's brothels and had passed it to his wife and son. In 1919, Al Capone's life changed again when he got a call from his old friend Johnny Torrio. Torrio had been having a lot of success in Chicago, so much so that he had recently become the right-hand man to Big Jim Colosimo, the undisputed king of the city's underworld. Meanwhile, Congress was on the verge of enacting Prohibition, which was certain to send major ripples throughout the criminal underworld. Everything was about to change, and Torrio wanted someone he could trust on his team when it did. Someone with brains, the ambition to do what was necessary, and the physical stature to back it up. Al was all in. Up next, Al Capone rides the wave of opportunity created by Prohibition to become one of the most powerful and feared men in the Midwestern United States. Listen closely as a master painter carefully brushes Benjamin Moore Regal Select down the seam of the wall. It's like poetry in motion. Benjamin Moore, see the love. Now, back to the story. Born into a big Italian family in Brooklyn, Al Capone dropped out of school at the age of 14 and fell straight into a life as a low-level racketeer. His size and intelligence made him a force to be reckoned with, even as a young teen. And he soon found mentors in the fastidious Johnny Torrio and the ruthless Frankie Yale the training and influence he received from each of these men would play a major role in shaping the criminal that Al Capone would become. As we discussed last week, Wilson Fisk's origin story suggests that his poor treatment at the hands of other students, coupled with a negative role model in the form of his father, sent him down the path of a criminal. It's a logical story, one that we can make sense of, that clearly says how and why Wilson Fisk developed the skewed worldview and morality of the Kingpin. But Al Capone's origins are far more nebulous. Unlike Wilson Fisk, he had a strong role model in Gabriel Capone, a hard-working immigrant father who loved his family and worked an honest job to put food on the table. He was perceptive enough to notice when his son began to head down a troubling path, and took steps to correct it. Steps that, as we just learned, backfired horribly. Despite Gabrielle Capone's best intentions, Al arrived at the same conclusion as the fictional Wilson Fisk. The things that were missing from his life, the things that he wanted, were wealth and power. And the best way of achieving those things was not by going to school, shining shoes, or becoming a businessman but by circumventing the law and seizing his destiny by the throat. Al Capone's turn to crime in spite of his father's influence suggests that the path to criminality might be less straightforward than Marvel's bullpen would have us believe. It could be read as evidence that he was simply a criminal by nature. But it's also possible that the rough elements of his neighborhood overwhelmed any positive influence from his father. Growing up on the hard-bitten streets of Brooklyn, where violence was an everyday reality, and where he could watch low-level enforcers and racketeers at work, certainly exposed him to the potential of such a life. Alternatively, the blame could be leveled at his strict parochial Catholic school that left him feeling alienated, or the principal who supposedly used corporal punishment to teach him a lesson. Countless studies and psychologists have struggled to understand how and which of these forces might cause a person to become a criminal. And while there's some variation, the answers can be summarized as all of the above. It's easy to see why comic writers might opt for a simpler narrative, such as one that attributes criminality to bad parenting. It's easier to accept a world in which the difference between good and evil comes down to whether your father figure is an Uncle Ben or a Richard Fisk, than one in which any host of uncontrollable factors might send you down the wrong path at any point. That's why stories about characters like Wilson Fisk and Don Vito Corleone are so effective. They help us contextualize and make sense of men like Al Capone because if we can understand them, maybe we can defeat them, or at least avoid becoming casualties of their criminal designs. But whatever forces influenced his choices, Al Capone was now fully entrenched in his life of crime. And with prohibition on the way, there was no turning back. On January 20th, 1920, The Volstead Act went into effect, making the manufacture and sale of alcohol illegal in the United States. Johnny Torrio's prediction that prohibition would change the rules of organized crime was right on the money. Outlawing booze had done little to stem Americans' appetites for it. Across the country, street-level gangs and sprawling criminal organizations stepped up to the plate – eager to take over the production and distribution pipelines that were now off-limits to law-abiding Americans. But Johnny Torrio and Al Capone were on the outside looking in. For months, Torrio had been trying to convince his boss that they should get into the bootlegging game. But Big Jim wasn't having it. He was happy with the way his criminal enterprise of brothels and racketeering had been operating for years and saw bootlegging as a path toward costly and unnecessary violence with rival gangs. He vetoed the proposition outright. Johnny was furious, and Al was right there with him. But neither man had gotten to where they were by taking no for an answer. If Big Jim wasn't on board he was just going to have to get out of their way. On May 11th, 1920, Johnny Torrio called Big Jim and told him that a shipment of supplies was about to be delivered to one of his properties. Colosimo drove to the location, but instead of a supply truck, there was an ambush waiting for him. The gunman was never identified, but evidence suggests that either Capone or his old boss Frankie Yale may have pulled the trigger. Either way, Jim Colosimo, the most powerful man in the Chicago underworld, was dead, leaving behind a sprawling network of brothels, gambling halls, and nightclubs. As Big Jim's number two, it was only fitting that Johnny Torrio take the wheel with his right-hand man at his side. Al Capone had arrived. The influx of cash was a huge boon for Torrio and Capone, allowing them to solidify their control of Jim Colosimo's criminal empire. While it was essentially common knowledge that they had been behind the hit on Big Jim, none of their lieutenants cared as long as the money was flowing. But Jim Colosimo had been right about one thing. The allure of bootlegging money had brought plenty of competition. And that meant trouble. Three main groups vied for control of Chicago's liquor trade. The largest was Johnny and Al's Italian empire, which they'd taken to calling the Chicago outfit. Then there was the Jenner brothers, who represented the Sicilian mafia, and the Northside Gang, a mostly Irish group run by Dean O'Banion. At first, Johnny Torrio was determined not to let squabbling get in the way of business. He played peacekeeper between the three groups, allying with the Sicilians and agreeing to clear turf boundaries with the Irish Northside Gang. The problems began when the Jenners started making moves on Northside territory. Torrio promised to get his allies to back off, but O'Banion wasn't satisfied that he'd actually followed through. Tensions continued to build as the Irish mobster became more and more troublesome for the Chicago outfit. Soon, Torrio and Capone had enough. O'Banion had to go. November 10, 1924 Dean O'Banion was at his flower shop on the north side when Frankie Yale walked through the door, flanked by two Jenner hitmen. O'Banion came out of the back with the bouquet of flowers Yale had ordered. The men shook hands, and Frankie Yale didn't let go, even as the Jenner hitmen fired several rounds into the north side boss. The murder sparked a spree of mayhem and violence that would mar the streets of Chicago for years to come. The Northside gang responded with attempted hits on Al Capone and Johnny Torrio. Capone narrowly escaped death by throwing himself to the floor of the restaurant where he was dining. Torrio's miss was even closer. He received a vicious beating and was only saved by his attacker's gun jamming at the last moment. That was enough for Johnny Torrio. In January of 1925, he packed his bags and headed for Italy, leaving the Chicago outfit in the hands of 26-year-old Capone. From humble beginnings in a Brooklyn slum, Al Capone had risen to become one of the most powerful men in Chicago. He controlled countless breweries, gambling halls, and brothels, as well as a sophisticated distribution network for transporting his liquor as far as Canada. The Chicago outfit was soon grossing $105 million a year, and had a weekly payroll of $300,000, approximately $4 million today. As boss Al Capone, displayed the combined strengths of his former mentors. In his day-to-day operations, he mimicked the shrewd planning and keen business mind of Johnny Torrio, always taking care to keep several layers of hierarchy between himself and his gang's crimes. In war, he displayed the ruthlessness and appetite for violence of the killer Frankie Yale. His gunmen attacked the North Side Gang in the streets, conducted drive-by shootings, and bombed their establishments and breweries. The streets ran red with the blood of North and South Side gangsters. Chicago had become a war zone. In addition to a stomach for violence, Al had adopted Frankie Yale's sense of fashion He dressed in flashy lime green and yellow suits, expensive jewelry, and a trademark off-white fedora, always tilted to the side. He went to extreme lengths to protect himself and his family, turning his house into a fortress and trading in his car for an armored Cadillac he bought off cops and politicians, taking complete control of the local government of Cicero, the suburb that had become the outfit's home base. Capone's payroll also included a number of reporters and journalists who he used to control his public image. The mere fact that he had a public image was itself an anomaly. Before Capone, most bosses relied on secrecy, enjoying lives of anonymity while profiting from the shadows. But not Al Capone. He aggressively courted the press, promoting an image of himself as an honest, hard-working businessman. An American success story. At one point, he invited a cavalcade of reporters into his house, treating them to a homemade spaghetti dinner while lamenting the gang violence that plagued the city. After that, he held frequent press conferences where he further denied any association with the Chicago outfits. He became famous for giving staggering tips to servers and shoe shiners, and ran his own soup kitchen for the homeless. He was like a politician running for office. If he had run for office, he likely would have won. People also simply liked Capone because he provided them with alcohol. Prohibition had turned anyone who drank into a criminal. Those who were willing to take the risk of supplying it were men of the people, Robin Hood figures who were sticking it to the man. Al Capone certainly saw himself this way. As he put it, he was just a businessman giving the people what they want. Al Capone's love of the spotlight offers another point of comparison to the fictional Kingpin, particularly the version seen in Frank Miller's run on Daredevil. Miller's comics depicted Fisk as a member of Manhattan's high society, often referring to himself as a humble dealer of spice. Later depictions would increasingly transform him into a public figure, Netflix's Daredevil series and the 2018 animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse both show Fisk attending press conferences and galas. And in 2017, Marvel's mainline comics saw Wilson Fisk become the mayor of New York City. As we discussed last week, Frank Miller's dark take on the Kingpin was partially intended to tear down a romanticized image of organized crime. By depicting Wilson Fisk's manipulation of the media, he showed how men like Al Capone used their wealth and power to maintain a carefully constructed facade. But while Capone was becoming more famous every day, he was still the leader of a criminal enterprise embroiled in a deadly war with the Chicago's North Side gang. And soon, one act of brutal violence would change the way the world saw Al Capone forever. Up next, we explore the fall of Al Capone, beginning with one of the most violent days in gangland history. With Kizik free shoes, motion sounds something like this. Al Capone's ascension to the head of the Chicago outfit kicked off a bloody and violent gang war the likes of which Chicago had never seen. From 1926 to 1929, the city's newspaper columns were filled with drive-by shootings and bombings. But rather than hide from the press, Al Capone seized the opportunity afforded by the spotlight, using his wealth and influence to carefully construct a public image of himself that was far from the truth. Last week, we discussed how Marvel's Kingpin can be read as a cipher for the prototypical mob boss. He's an assortment of tropes that reveals how the writers and audience view the men behind organized crime. If that's the case, it's clear that Al Capone has had quite the impact on our collective unconscious. Kingpin's behemoth stature and his costume, a white suit and diamond-studded purple ascot, feel highly inspired by Al Capone's bold sense of fashion. The Marvel villain further apes many of Capone's core traits, such as his combination of intelligence and physical prowess, and his infamous temper. But Al Capone's biggest contribution to the public perception of mobsters wasn't his physical stature, his sense of style, or even the way he managed his organization. It was his love of his own popularity. The way he aggressively courted the press and used it to shape his public image. Capone's embrace of the spotlight is revealing. It suggests a confidence a lack of shame for what he was and how he made his money. Compare his behavior with Frank Costello, the gangster who refused to show more than his hands on television. Capone had no lingering wish to be part of respectable society. He accepted his choices and was proud of what he had accomplished. Al Capone casually admitted as much himself, once stating... I would rather be rich, affluent and greedy and go to hell when I die, than live in poverty on this earth. Whatever we think of this mindset, it's clear that Al Capone was more than happy with his decisions. He saw himself as an American success story and wanted the media to portray him accordingly. But with his war with the North Side gang growing more and more violent and costly by the day, his ability to control the narrative Began to slip. By 1929, the war between the North Side Gang and Capone's Chicago outfit had grown more heated than ever. There were significant casualties on both sides. Al had taken out Jaime Weiss, one of the two men now claiming control of the North Side Gang after Dean O'Banion's murder. But he'd had less success against Weiss's more cautious partner, George Bugs Moran. Meanwhile, Moran had made several unsuccessful attempts on Capone's life. In one instance, his gunmen attacked Capone while he was inside his headquarters at the Cicero Hawthorne Hotel, luring the mob boss to the window and then firing hundreds of rounds of lead into the face of the building. It seemed that Chicago simply wasn't big enough for both Al Capone and Bugs Moran. One of them was going down. On February 14th, 1929, seven high-ranking members of the Northside gang met at their headquarters, a warehouse and garage at 2212 North Clark Street. The agenda? Putting a bullet in Al Capone. Bugs Moran was running late, leaving his second-in-command, Albert Kashilik to start the meeting. The discussions had barely begun when, around 10.30am, four armed men burst through the door. Two of the men wore police uniforms, the other were in plain clothes. They shouted for Kashilik and his gang to line up against the wall so they could cuff them. The gangsters complied turning away and raising their hands above their heads. But the uniformed men weren't police. And this wasn't a raid. It was a massacre. The uniformed and plainclothes men opened fire, blasting the seven Northside gang members with Tommy guns and shotguns. The gunmen were already on their way out before the last body hit the ground. By the time the real cops arrived, they were long gone. It is widely considered the single bloodiest day in gangland history. To this day, the shooters have never been conclusively identified. But even then, it was widely believed that Al Capone had ordered the raid in yet another attempt to kill Bugs Moran. Proving the Chicago Outfit boss's involvement would be another matter. He was currently out of town in Florida, buying a second house for his wife. But Capone had underestimated the effect this level of violence would have on the public. Coverage of the shooting, dubbed the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, was plastered across the nation's headlines, accompanied by gruesome images of the victims. Chicago's citizens had weathered years of gang violence in their streets, but this was more than they could stomach. Al Capone's reputation took an immediate hit. In one moment, the world turned against him. Capone spent much of the next year repelling the attacks of his enlivened rivals. When the heat got too intense he arranged for himself to be arrested on the relatively minor charge of carrying a concealed weapon so that he could spend a few months safely inside the walls of the penitentiary of his choosing when he got out on march 17, 1930 he learned that the chicago crime commission had declared him public enemy number one by this point It wasn't just the city of Chicago that was out to get Capone. The FBI had been quietly watching his organization, tapping several Capone family members' phones and monitoring his associates' bank accounts. The labyrinthine, amorphous structure of the Chicago outfit made linking Capone to any crimes committed by his enforcers difficult. But the government still had a few tricks up its sleeve. Assistant Attorney General Mabel Walker Willebrandt had struck on a novel approach to prosecuting mobsters who seemed untouchable. Gangsters naturally never declared their illegal earnings as income, and yet their wealth could still be documented through the expensive homes, cars, and clothing they purchased. If the government could show that the mobsters had lied about their income, it could prosecute them without ever needing to prove that they were also thieves and killers. That didn't mean catching Capone through this strategy would be easy. Far from it. At 31 years old, the man had never had a bank account in his name. He paid for everything in cash and had been careful to always pay all his home and property taxes. But with the IRS sniffing at his door... Capone's attorneys suggested a concession. If he could acknowledge some income to justify all the money he spent, the feds might let him off with just a fine. The plan backfired spectacularly. On June 5, 1931, a grand jury indicted Al Capone on 22 counts of tax evasion. They used his own letter admitting to undisclosed income as evidence that he must have some connection to a criminal enterprise. And from there, the prosecution built an elaborate case demonstrating his role as the head of the Chicago outfit. Capone fought the charges with everything in his playbook. He bought or intimidated every member of the jury. But the government was ready for this move and swapped the jury with one from another trial at the last minute. Capone's ability to control the narrative around his trial was now in shambles. The St. Valentine's Day massacre had damaged his image with the public, and the government's highly publicized campaign against him had only made things worse. The Great Depression had begun, and many Americans were now struggling to provide for their families, they had little sympathy for a man with the wealth and means of Al Capone. His once sterling Robin Hood image was gone, his reputation in tatters. On October 17, 1931, he was convicted of three counts of income tax evasion and sentenced to 11 years in prison. He was 32 years old. The fact that Al Capone was convicted not for murder or racketeering, but for tax evasion, is one of the most enduring parts of his legacy. In a certain sense, it has only contributed to his legend, suggesting that he was too powerful for even the US government to take down in a traditional manner. We see this theme time and again in Marvel's depiction of Kingpin 2 the character is constantly one step ahead of the law or manipulating it for his own use. When he does find himself in prison, he finds a way to take advantage of the situation and come back stronger than ever. This depiction and Al Capone's story capture the mystique of the gangster figure. They suggest that organized crime is a force so entrenched in American society that we can never weed it out completely. At least, not through traditional means. Frank Miller seems to have addressed this idea in Daredevil number 231. At the end of the arc, Kingpin gets away scot-free after destroying Matt Murdock's life. And yet, the reader is left with a distinct sense that he has lost simply because Daredevil has survived. By drawing on the fact that he is a good, decent person, Matt Murdock manages to persevere in the face of all the damage that Kingpin has wreaked in his life. Again, the king of crime is defeated through untraditional means. Al Capone had hoped to land at a comfortable prison, one where bribes might allow him a semblance of his old power. But he was disappointed once again. In May of 1932, he arrived at the Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. Shortly after being admitted, he was diagnosed with syphilis. The sexually transmitted disease likely could have been cured if he'd caught it early, but he reportedly never sought treatment due to a fear of needles. In 1934, Capone was transferred to Alcatraz Prison, the brand new Federal Penitentiary in San Francisco Bay. He kept his head down, hoping to shorten his sentence with good behavior. But his disease was progressing far quicker than his sentence, at this point definitively having progressed to neurosyphilis, and he increasingly felt the effects of dementia. On November 16, 1939, he was released from Alcatraz so that he could seek treatment. After a stint in a Baltimore hospital, he returned to his mansion in Palm Island, Florida, where he would spend his remaining years being cared for by his wife, May. On January 21, 1947, Al Capone suffered a stroke. He fell into a coma and died four days later at the age of 46. Al Capone's ignoble death serves almost as a reassurance for those determined to see villainy gets its due. In the end, he paid the consequences for his crimes and the short-sighted actions of his youth. Perhaps if he had sought treatment for his syphilis earlier, the story might have ended differently. He could have left prison with plenty of years to enjoy what wealth and power he still had. He might even have returned to Chicago to reclaim control of the outfit, which continued its operations long after his death. Alternatively, he might have lived long enough to be persecuted for more serious crimes. Regardless, it's difficult to overstate the influence Al Capone has had on Western culture. The popular image of the Prohibition-era gangster with a pinstripe suit and cocked fedora is essentially modeled after him. Within months of taking over the Chicago outfit, he turned the city into a war zone. He changed the way government fought organized crime. That was Al. Big, brash, and shamelessly willing to do whatever it took to achieve his American dream. Taken together, Al Capone and Wilson Fisk offer a fascinating perspective on the imagery and ideas that we associate with gangsters and organized crime. Their combination of strength, intelligence and ruthlessness serve almost as a physical manifestation of the mob. Their rags to riches origin story suggests that figures of their ilk can come from anywhere. And their embrace of the spotlight reveals how evil men might seek to use wealth and power to pull the wool over our eyes. Over the past weeks, we've discussed fictional and real crime lords whose careers suggest a warped version of the American dream. Al Capone and Marvel's Kingpin each represent a shameless embrace of this perspective, a dismissal of any concerns of morality that stand in the way of success and wealth. In Al Capone's death and Daredevil's personal victory, we are offered a stern reminder that while these giants of crime might always fascinate us, their power is only temporary. And the bigger they come, the harder they fall. Next week, we'll hear about another uncompromising and ruthless villain tailor-made for the modern world. A figure who couldn't be further from Al Capone on the outside, but possesses the same ruthless drive and willingness to do whatever it takes to get what he wants. His unassuming appearance subverts every expectation we have for what a crime boss should look and sound like, While his origin story reinforces timeless themes of rising from nothing, his brilliance and ruthlessness are simultaneously chilling and inspiring. He is Gus Fring from AMC's Breaking Bad. Thanks for listening to Villains. We'll be back next week with another episode. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Villains for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a Parcast Studios original and is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Villains was written by Andrew Kelleher with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden.